thanks very much, uh, uh, colleagues and comrades and friends uh, from uh, all over the country joining us for uh, this really important uh, honouring of the, uh, the uh, history of the, uh, the uh, Freedom Charter. Uh, we're gathering here this afternoon to uh, remember uh, on this occasion of the 65th anniversary of the Freedom Charter the significance um, of this uh, really important document. So um, what is going to happen is that I will say a few words uh, and then I'm going to be uh, handing over to our uh, really, and we're really honored to have our, our colleagues and comrades join us here this afternoon. I will say a few words uh, by way of introduction to, um, uh, for them. Um, and they will speak um, uh, uh, for their allotted uh, 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 time that we've, 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 we've given them. Uh, we have an uh, open floor uh, conversation. But let me uh, uh, kick it off, please, colleagues, by simply saying uh, how important this, uh, this, this moment is. It comes, of course, uh, as we remember um, uh, these 65 years and the uh, beginnings of uh, the uh, 1950s and how momentous you know, that period of the 1950s was. Um, it was uh, characterized by a turn in the way in which uh, we were engaging um, uh, the, the, the struggle. Um, so, um, uh, gathered uh, at uh, Cliptown uh, on that memorable day in, in 1955 uh, were the constituent organizations uh, which came to make up the, uh, the, uh, the alliance. Um, and uh, those organizations had been involved in this incredible signature campaign. It's uh, a campaign which has only been once since then been repeated uh, on, that, on that particular scale. Thousands and thousands of uh, volunteers went out into the country to hear the views of the uh, South African people, uh, and to hear what their demands were, hear what their wishes were for a future South Africa. And these wishes were all gathered and brought together uh, uh, at this um, meeting uh, uh, in Cliptown uh, in, in, in 1955, um, uh, where the Congress of the People uh, 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 convened. Uh, and out of that meeting came the, uh, the Freedom Charter. And the Freedom Charter is in all of our lives uh, a really important uh, document. It spells out, uh, if you like, what the value basis is on which uh, uh, we uh, are talking about a new country and what the country uh, is, is, is all about. Uh, for its time, it was uh, uh, really uh, at the uh, cutting edge, if you like, of many discussions uh, which were taking place globally around um, the uh, freedom struggles, the liberation movements uh, in, in many places. So we're really very privileged to be able to remember today um, and to commemorate the significance uh, of, of this, this, this document. Uh, it provides us still today with, with uh, important uh, orientations and directions for uh, where we uh, ought to be going. Uh, so without uh, saying anything much more myself, 
I'd like to introduce uh, our colleagues who are going to be talking to us this afternoon. Um, our keynote speaker uh, is Ms. Uh, Baleka Mbete. Uh, and Ms. Mbete, uh, Mbete, I'm really sorry if I um, uh, offend you when I say that I can only think of you as our speaker. Um, as our speaker of the, the National Assembly and, and I make a mistake I know when I introduce you like that because uh, you have moved on, but that's how many of us remember you. Of course, you've worn many hats in your life, uh, <laughs> um, you know, you, you, and you come to this particular occasion as the chair of the archives uh, subcommittee of the NEC of the, uh, the, the ANC. And through that, I'd also like to welcome the other members of the archives committee who have, who have, have joined us. And that's the hat uh, that you are wearing here today as you address us. But we also know, of course, uh, that for a time you were our deputy president and you were uh, the chair of the ANC. And so, uh, colleagues, it's a great, great privilege for uh, all of us to be uh, having uh, uh, Comrade Mbete here uh, with us. Thank you very much, Comrade Mbete. Uh, following Comrade Mbete, we, we, we will uh, have William Gomede uh, who, who, who will talk us. And William, you've done lots of work for us in the last uh, couple of uh, weeks. and. I'd like to welcome you back here again to uh, the HSRC and to say that um, your provocations are always extremely uh, uh, helpful and generative. Um, um, William is the executive chairperson of the Democracy Works Foundation uh, and also an associate professor uh, at uh, Wits University. Uh, and he's written this wonderful book, uh, which um, uh, is a, a bestseller on on, on former President Mbeki. Um, also joining us is, is, is uh, uh, Ismail Vardy, uh, Dr. Ismail Vardy, whom I know for a very long time. We were comrades together a long, long time ago. And it's great to have you here with us, uh, Ismail. Ismail currently is a member of parliament. Uh, he used to be the MEC for transport in the uh, Gauteng government. And uh, it's from Saturdays that we know each other. So thanks very much. Uh, 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 Ismail for, for, for being here. He comes to us today also as a member of the, uh, uh, the Ahmed Kathrada uh, board. And finally joining us uh, and closing off our list of speakers is uh, Dr. Jolene uh, Stein-Kotzer uh, from uh, uh, our organization, the um, HSRC. Uh, and uh, jo Jolene also has been very prominent uh, in, in the last few weeks. Jolene comes to us having written a book on freedom and the, uh, the, the, the Freedom Charter. So thank you very much, uh, Jodine. Thank you, Chairperson. I stand on the protocols as already presented by you. And good afternoon to all participants and viewers. I'm happy to have been invited to be here today among great minds at this important event to commemorate the 65 years of the Freedom Charter. I commend the HSRC for bringing us together in this public dialogue to reflect, promote, and advance knowledge and debate on the role of social and human science research in South Africa in the context of this occasion. Our lives have been touched by the Freedom Charter in many ways. Our history impacted by its vision and the dream it represented. 
and our country has started to be transformed by ideas contained in it. My generation encountered the Freedom Charter along the way in our long march to freedom over the decades. We sang and recited poetry in its praise and carried it on our shoulders as our flag. After 1994, we were fortunate to be among those South Africans assigned by history to be in the front line of implementing its vision. Besides a mixed bag of memories that this history has bequeathed us, there are achievements we are proud of, but there are also disappointments we should be frank about and find answers to. I'll leave the celebration of our achievements to for another day. Instead, we should talk more about our disappointments without lamenting. We should learn from our failures to appreciate better our challenges so we can do something about them. Nostalgia is necessary for the human spirit. It brings back good memories and reminds us of the golden days of our past, which we must always cherish. Today, however, we must be forward-looking and solution-based. We should look to the past to seek the wisdom we need to handle current challenges. First things first, to focus our collective hearts and minds on what has to be priority, let's look at the promise of clause nine, houses, security, and comfort. The same clause promises that no one shall go hungry. It also promises to abolish slums and ghettos. In the most recent times, as our government tried hard to ensure implementation of regulations right at the start of level five of the lockdown in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw the glaring overcrowdedness of most informal settlements. According to Stats South Africa, more than 66% of South Africans are living in urban areas. They are in the townships and squatter camps where social distancing and regular hand washing is near impossible. To avoid that disjuncture between uh, government messaging and the reality of the majority, we must ensure our policies positively impact, especially those who are the poorest, beleaguered with the issues of survival, of life and death. And I must also make a point, uh, having talked about urban areas, that the lack of infrastructure in the underdeveloped rural areas needs focused attention. Secondly, some lessons. To the generation of leaders of the 1950s, the Freedom Charter had a meaning and an intended purpose. They crisscrossed the country, united in action, listening to the people to capture their voices and aspirations. Since 1994, we have institutionalized the imperatives of listening to our people throughout our open democratic society. And in our lawmaking process, 
that makes public participation compulsory. As we know, our media is among the most fearless and noisiest in the world. For the ANC, the governing party, it is standard practice to conduct door-to-door -door campaigns, talking to people, receiving their feedback. I have participated in many door-to-door -door campaigns and I have seen public participation unfold in many years that I served in our parliament. But the question is, do we really listen like the generation of the 1950s? Do we engage in these activities as a ritual or as a political routine? A government that listens does not feel threatened by crowds and rallies. A leadership that listens does not get irritated by criticism or become defensive. Listening is a bottom-up exercise that is essential, not only in the making of public policy, but also for assessing and evaluating relevance and impact of state actions. As leaders, we must strive to hear and understand the service delivery protests that from time to time take place in different parts of our country, many of which are sending us a message we should not ignore. We should listen to the songs of these protesters. They are no longer about foster or apartheid leaders. They are now about us. It is clear that the people want our government to do more and to do better. Unity is another takeaway from the 1950s. Unity across race, gender, and generational divide. From the 1950s generation provides us with an example of what we can achieve when we are led by a leadership that is united in its mission and purpose and firm in its commitment to the people's cause. Chairperson, a research center like the HSRC is better placed to develop a detailed evidence-based assessment of how South Africa has performed in its delivery over the last 26 years since liberation. I can only offer my tentative thoughts and due to time constraints, I'll confine myself just to a few clauses. The doors of learning and culture shall be opened. That's clause eight. Policies of the present day government have ensured that the doors of learning are opened to all, particularly the girl child. Access has opened up to many who in the past had doors closed in their faces. We, however, need to pay attention to the curricula and be satisfied that it will produce innovators and problem solvers who will take South Africa into the digital and environmentally friendly future we envisage. Learning in indigenous languages is critical in producing the type of outcomes we are looking for. When looking at the schools and universities around the world, in addition to the curriculum responding to the challenges of the day, they teach their children in their indigenous languages. In clause two, we've said 
all people shall have equal right to use their own languages. But we have opted to adopt English as the official working language, which puts the child on the back foot even before they engage with the concepts within education. Much as we did not want to have the vote initially, we should take bolder policy conditions now. In our languages and other bold policy options to fulfill that dream. <coughs> A space that was once extremely vibrant when we were in the external mission was the cultural sector. It played a big role in how we communicated to the world about South Africa, inside and outside of the country at the time. It communicated more effectively both atrocities and our dreams of a new South Africa. Let us learn from O.R. Tambo's example when he directed our veteran musician, Jonas Kwangwa, who was based in the USA, to form the Amanda Cultural Assembly, utilizing our young MKK leaders drawn from the military camps in Angola. All national groups shall have equal rights. Again, clause two. The issue of culture is raised there where the charter promised the people the right to develop their own folk culture and customs. Ways must be found to achieve this by allocating resources for activities in each district closer to the people. Cultural festivals are good for the soul, especially for a society emerging from a bloody past like ours. Equality among the national groups is also about wealth and ownership of land. Some have access to wealth and land, others don't. These ownership patterns are racially based. We must address that issue, that imbalance. Ladies and gentlemen, my third point, which is the last, the Freedom Charter was written as a vision for a future for this country, but its application is universal. We have recently witnessed how racism is a global phenomenon and must be fought on all fronts and across borders. We saw a black life being squeezed out with a racist knee in eight minutes, 46 seconds. We also saw in England, people of all races and colors echoing our own roads must fall, which was in the student sector recently. The racist symbols of colonial figures must fall everywhere. South Africa is a nation in the making that has admitted the existence of racial divisions among us and the difficulties we continue to encounter in building a non-racial society is a lesson to the world that we cannot overcome these challenges overnight. It is more difficult to eradicate racism when those who are privileged by skin color cling to their privileges at all costs, resist transformation, and refuse to share and live with others, 
in the spirit of solidarity and Ubuntu. The most difficult step is when it comes to sharing the world. The message of the Freedom Charter is the people shall share in the country's wealth. To the landless, the land shall be shared among those who work it. To keep the youth and women at the center of our efforts, I want to conclude by paying homage to our youth whose importance to our country we must always affirm like we did recently on June 16th. I also must say femicide must stop. Society must deal harshly with the perpetrators of gender-based violence. All rights promised by the Charter are for all South Africans, men and women. The best way to guarantee a future that realizes the Freedom Charter is by investing in industry and the structural transformation of our country. The political will of the ANC to implement the pronouncements of the Charter cannot be disputed. We also cannot dispute that the lives of our people have vastly improved from what they used to be. I end in the words of the Freedom Charter. No government can justly claim authority unless it is based on the will of all the people. I thank you, Chairperson. And thank you to everybody who's participating. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me again. Um, I mean, my focus really is going to be on, you know, what kind of e economy and how do we do it to rebuild out of COVID-19? And how can we rebuild our economy on the principles of the Freedom Charter? So the first thing is given the cataclysmic nature of, of COVID-19, of the crisis itself, that conventional economic responses are really, is not going to be very effective. Um, so what we really will need here would be an integrated economic stimulus response, which would focus on rebuilding neglected public and social infrastructure, housing, education, water, transport, technology, and so on while at the same time focusing on saving current critical businesses, jobs and opportunities, and then also create new businesses and new job creation initiatives and to diversify the economy. So that's, you know, if that is the core, that would be for me, you know, the core part of what a freedom charter principles would be in relation of rebuilding the economy after COVID-19. Now, such an integrated response, and unfortunately, we, we haven't seen that uh, response yet from government, but such an uh, integrated response will have about, you know, 10 or so uh, pillars, and I'll try to deal with, uh, with eight of the potential pillars uh, of a COVID-19 economic, uh, integrated economic response, which would be based um, on the principles of the Freedom Charter. Now, the first part of it would be, to focus on neglected public services. Um, so, you know, the last couple of years, we've seen a neglect in the delivery of, of, of housing. To start off with it, I mean, COVID-19, we've seen the spread of COVID-19 really um, one of 
the reasons why spring is so fast in South Africa and also, you know, some of the countries like South Africa and India and Brazil and so on, is that we have large informal settlements, uh, township and rural housing is in, 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 inadequate, and no social distancing is possible. So for me, the first pillar would really be to, can we use COVID-19 to rebuild housing in South Africa? And, and not, so this is a great opportunity for a giant rollout of new housing. Um, and if we do two things, is to build a manufacturing sector around the rebuilding of social housing. And in that way, we would defend existing construction-related businesses and also create new ones. And then a skills program has to be linked. A mass skills program will have to be linked um, to, you know, to roll out uh, of the housing uh, program. The second one would be second pillar of a integrated economic COVID response would be to refurbish the crumbling water and sanitation infrastructure in the townships, informal settlements, and rural areas. And again, I mean, we've seen it. Uh, COVID-19 has been spreading fast in our country because water and sanitation infrastructure really is ineffective and has been ineffective over the last couple of years. So this is really is a, an opportunity for economic rebuild uh, that expands water and sanitation across the country. And similarly, to create a new manufacturing sector around the rebuilding of water and, 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 and sanitation. When I say a re, you know, build a, a manufacturing sector, it would mean that we would, all the inputs, all the material, all the equipment uh, to construct or to rebuild the water and sanitation sector would be locally, would be locally based. That is what I mean in terms of, you know, if we focus on a sector, it's not just, is that we bring in or we create a manufacturing and a skills development alongside um, the rebuild. The third pillar would be our public education system, which has been, you know, since 1994, really one of the great disappointments, uh, poor quality of education itself, school infrastructures such as classrooms, equipment and toilets uh, are really in, in many places appalling. And to overcome this COVID-19 crisis, we really, we are, we need to have to focus on human development. This is essential to reskill um, not only those who lose their jobs, but those who are, you know, unemployed before COVID-19, uh, before the virus. And the, but crucially, cru absolutely crucially, the skills development uh, would, will have to be focused on training relevant, relevant skills to the post-COVID-19 e economy and world. Uh, because COVID-19 changed the way the world works, the way the world works. Uh, look into the future and so we cannot train mass scale we cannot focus our mass training on the pre-COVID-19 world it has to be the post-COVID-19 uh, economy uh, 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 relevant uh, uh, to that. The fourth pillar would then be look or rather uh, before I go into the fourth well, uh, you know what would be a focus on public education be, can we build a manufacturing sector around 
to the public education system. So we link the rebuild of the education system also to, you know, the construction, the manufacturing, creating business and new businesses, supporting current businesses and expanding skills in, as we build the public education system. Um, you know, as we build the toilets in schools, as we bring in the equipment, as we refurbish schools, you know, to bring in small business, bring in communities, um, and we build the skills um, to maintain infrastructure over the long term. So then the fourth pillar would be is our ailing health system. Again, I mean, the weakness as COVID-19 wage is our health system. Um, you know, that's, um, unlike many other of our peer countries like the South Koreas and the Singapores and so on, you know, we did not uh, unfortunately learn um, from previous um, uh, epidemics to rebuild our health infrastructure. So this is, again, is an opportunity. So we look at, have to look at it as an opportunity to rebuild um, um, the health, uh, the public health infrastructure, equipment and skills, and it should be a very crucial part of the integrated economic plan. Now, COVID-19 really has exposed us that we don't have, you know, we import our health equipment, we import our medicine, we import our personal protective equipment from abroad. And during this period now, you know, many countries have produced these things. I mean, in, the, in the Europe, for example, and India at some stage, um, did not export their products. They kept it in-house to deal with their own crises, um, leaving countries like South Africa vulnerable. So it's going to be really important, and there's a great opportunity for South Africa to build a health-related manufacturing sector around providing um, health equipment, pharmaceuticals, medicine, personal protective equipment, not only for South Africa, but for the region and for other uh, developing countries, but also to build a skills um, development program link um, to um, this uh, health manufacturing uh, uh, sector. The fifth pillar that we could look at is food production system. Again, um, COVID-19 has also shown, you know, that our food production system is vulnerable. Um, and it, food production and agriculture is a really crucial potential uh, growth area of, of post-COVID-19. And the way we need to do it, a core component would, again, would be to build an agriculture manufacturing sector that can also not, so we're not only producing uh, the foods, but we must also produce um, the inputs. We must produce the equipment and the material, and we have to produce the skills aligned with it. And so this is a different way of looking at agriculture. Unfortunately, pre-COVID-19, the way we looked at agriculture as if is just land, land, transferring land. No, we will have to look at it differently. We'll have to look at it as building an agriculture manufacturing sector where land is just one small component of it. And 90% of it is actually the inputs, the equipment, uh, and so on. I think what we will also need to do is it's not only the commercial sector, land sector, you know, that we will have to defend and expand, but we also have to look at the informal 
informal land sector, communal land, I think it is going to be very crucial that we introduce a reform here to transfer communal land to individual hands so that individuals can produce uh, for exports. And not only just transfer that uh, communal land to individuals, but also then bring a training, a skills training program that help people transition from just producing um, or basic stuff, but produce stuff that a country needs and stuff that Africa needs and that the world needs. So it's a transition from, if you are a rural informal farmer, not just to produce basics, but to transition from the basics to the things that the world needs. And that's going to be a, a crucial transformation in terms of agriculture, because that kind of transformation, if you look around the world since the Second World War, the countries that moved from informal agriculture to global production, they've moved from just producing basic stuff to producing things that their countries need and that the world needs, not only currently, but the world will need um, in, in the future. A public transport system, again, is another potential um, component of, for economic reform. The spread of, of the virus in the country it also has to do with our outdated public transport, uh, public transport system. It's impossible to have social distancing in minibus taxis, you know, overcrowded trains and so on. So here's a great opportunity to rebuild a manufacturing sector around a public transport system to make it safer, cleaner, and to integrate it and to build a skills program also around it. But sixthly, COVID-19 also provides us an opportunity to create a recycling manufacturing economy in the way China, Denmark, and Sweden has done, where every waste is produced can be reproduced either as inputs for other products or even, even to produce energy. This is a great opportunity for us. Uh, and as you know, I can just, if one can imagine building a skills program, a mass skills program around waste that is not just that exit now that we could, like in China, you know, where many products are just recycled um, from, so waste is recycled into new products. And that is a potential industry for South Africa in the post-COVID-19 uh, uh, period. Then, of course, COVID-19 changes the way the world works. It has accelerated the digital economy. We're not, never going to go back now. Uh, we are into the digital economy. This is a really great economy for South Africa, a, a, a opportunity to move into the digital economy uh, as companies shift and people shift online quicker now, after the virus now, uh, people are now going to work more from home, less face-to-face -face interactive um, uh, type of, 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 of working services, even online education will be increased. Can we use these opportunities really also to transform our own society, to create jobs in these new areas, um, whether it is you know, schooling, um, um, e-commerce, and also, can we build the new skills that we need to build in these areas? Uh, more focus, uh, but in these uh, uh, areas. But this is also an opportunity for us uh, to foster a green economy, energy uh, manufacturing hub, 
turn South Africa into a green economy uh, and a manufacturing hub. Can we provide, can we create new solar, wind and sustainable energy sources in this post-COVID-19 world, but where we also produce the inputs and the materials here in South Africa? And, we, and can we create a mass skills development program around this green energy? Um, train people to create their own solar panels, their own wind panels, um, their own alternative energy uh, sources. So a new manufacturing sector based uh, on, on, on green energy. For me, the fifth, sorry, the ninth would be is South Africans as a country, most of us live in the informal economy. We travel in informal transport. We live in informal housing. That is just unacceptable. I mean, you know, the spread of COVID-19 is because our economy is structured around the informal economy, formal travel, informal housing. Can we formalize, you know, these elements of our economy? And can we build a manufacturing sector around in formalizing the informal economy, informal travel, and informal housing? Um, and can we have a skills program uh, aligned to formalizing this informal uh, e economy? And you can stop wrapping up, please, William. Yes, yes. So I will be wrapping up here. So the last, the 10 pillar is building, rebuilding our civil society um, organization sector. Um, you, civil, you know, to, to secure existing jobs and to create new jobs. Civil society is going to be crucial to help government with capacity to co-deliver public services and basic services in communities from combat, combating gangsterism to running community cleanups, community police partnerships, um, to supporting vulnerable women. Um, it is going to be important that uh, you know, the COVID-19 economic response supports um, the, the civil society economy. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Karen, and good afternoon to everybody. Uh, I want to uh, put on the historical lens or open the historical perspective to this particular campaign. So I think if we, if we look at the entire history of the liberation movement, the campaign for the Congress of the People and the Freedom Charter stands out as, I think, the most important campaign in the history of the ANC and the Congress Alliance. So there's really four, uh, three areas that I would want to quickly talk about. The first is just the, uh, the radicalization of the ANC after the Second World War, because we can't understand this particular campaign of the people in the Freedom Charter without understanding what happened a few years before that uh, within the ANC and the broader Congress movement. And then very quickly, I'd like to just talk about the, the nature of the campaign for the Congress of the People in the Freedom Charter. And then the last area that I would talk briefly about is just the historical impact, the political significance of the adoption of the Freedom Charter, uh, both in the 50s, but also in the more recent uh, periods since the 1980s. Now, I think there were three key events of the 1940s, just after the World War, which were extremely important for the realization of the, of the African National Congress. The first, I think we all know about that, was the formation of the ANC Youth League uh, in 1944. And what that did is that it propelled a new generation of, of leaders, younger people, more militant, more energetic, 
to come into the leadership of the, of the ANC and the Congress Alliance in the 1950s and started transforming and energizing the organization. But then there were two important uh, events that took place. One was the African mine workers strike of 1946. And the way in which the, the state dealt with it, the brutality with which that particular strike was, was crushed, I think it raised profound questions for the direction of the ANC itself, where the, even the older generation of leaders who used to serve on the Native Representative Council, for example, started saying that, look, this kind of, of participation uh, in state structures is not yielding anything uh, you know, positive for us. And we need to begin to listen to the younger generation and explore new ways of organizing the ANC. And then the related thing was really the 1946 Indian Passive Resistance Campaign. It was led by Dr. Yusuf Dadu and Dr. Monty Naika from the Transvaal and Natal Indian Congresses. Because what that campaign did is that it was, it was a practical demonstration of a mass movement emerging within the Indian community and how mass opposition could be organized uh, should the ANC move in that particular direction. And though these, these events, the formation of the Youth League, 1946 mine work strike and the passive resistance campaign, I think really set the stage for the coming together, at least at that stage, the, of the South African Indian Congress and the African National Congress, and the signing of what is commonly known as the Three Doctors Pact, the signing of an agreement or a joint, an agreement of, of joint cooperation between Dr. Kuma of the ANC, Dr. Dadu from the Transvaal Indian Congress and uh, Dr. Monty Naika from the Natal Indian Congress. And I think what this culminated that towards the end of the 1940s was really the emergence of a new program of action by the ANC uh, at its conference in 1949, a new leadership emerging, younger people being propelled into the leadership echelons or structures of the ANC. And the stage was really set for, for a new kind of resistance movement, new kind of extra parliamentary opposition movement in the 1950s led, of course, by the ANC. Two events stand out really for the 1950s. One was the May Day strike, which was largely in Transvaal. This was the first time that a political strike was being, uh, the tactic of a political strike was being applied. It had significant response from the African working class, at least in the urban areas in, in, in the Transvaal at that stage. And it demonstrated the willingness of ordinary African people, the working people, to begin to engage in mass-based mass politics. And that, I think, was quite critical when the ANC took a decision on the 26th of June, 1952, apply the national stay away as a tactic against, against the apartheid state. Um, what, I mean, the response of the state was quite, quite dramatic. It had already started banning people arresting leaders, etc. And I think out of that grew the application of these new forms of, of activities, of resistance and tactics, uh, strategies and tactics of the NC. The NC and, and the South African Union Congress uh, had taken the decision then in 1952 to launch the defiance campaign against six unjust laws. What the defiance campaign did was that it really transformed, it captured the imagination of the urban African community throughout the country, all the major centers. The NC became really a mass-based urban movement, uh, popular, again, in touch with the grassroots, with, with its urban constituency, which was a new phenomenon, really, in terms of, uh, of African or Black politics 
uh, in the period compared to the period before that. So 8,500 people had voluntarily courted imprisonment. Uh, some of them were jailed, etc. And I think it began to transform the ANC into a, some kind of a mass-based political movement, which it didn't enjoy that kind of status before. And I think out of these campaigns, the central question emerged, okay, we know what we're against. We're against apartheid, we're against the implementation of apartheid laws. At that stage, it was the implementation of the Group Areas Act, the impending implementation of the Bantu Authorities Act, but I'm sorry, the Bantu Education Act, uh, the Population Registration Act, uh, the Suppression of Commun uh, Communism Act, etc. So people knew what they, the gut feeling told them what they were against. But it was Professor Z.K. Matthews really in the December conference uh, in, in the, of the ANC in, in, the, in the Cape province that raised the idea about what are we for? We, we know what we're against, but what is our vision of a new South Africa? And he championed the idea of a Congress of the People or a People's Assembly where ordinary South Africans could begin to talk about their aspirations, their, their dreams of a new South Africa. And out of that crystallized, was crystallized the campaign for the Congress of the People and the Freedom Charter. Of course, this campaign was really launched by the ANC in, in, in 1954. It was almost a, a 12 or 18 month campaign, but novel organizational methodology was introduced in this period. The door-to-door -door campaigning, going to factories, going out to rural areas, talking to tribal chiefs, uh, to, to ordinary people on the streets uh, where they were meeting, through public gatherings, house meetings. So new methods of mobilization were introduced through this campaign. And what happened is really the, the, the organizational reach of the ANC uh, had extended beyond just the major urban areas now, but had begun to penetrate more widely throughout the country. Also in 1954, saw the formation of the South African Colored People's Organization and the South African Congress of Democrats. Uh, in the same year, the Federation of South African Women was established and the South African Congress of Trade Unions. So you see a burst of organizational formations, new developments, new structures emerging, some linked to specific sectors, some uh, linked to, to particular communities. And then of course, through this campaign, what you begin to see is a greater organizational coherence and unification of, of, of the movement. Uh, and I think the campaign, the Congress of the People itself represents that moment in history when the total forces really of the Congress Alliance had come together visibly, very demonstrably, uh, 3,000 delegates gathering in Cape Town talking about what would their vision of a new South Africa uh, be uh, you know, in, in the years to come. So this was really, I think for many people, if you speak to the activists, the leaders of that period, the Congress of the People was perhaps one of the greatest highlights of their lives. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, the late Reggie Vandi always used to tell us, it was like the epitome of his struggle, of, of, of all that he fought for. And I think what the, the state did, it overreacted, it raided the Congress of the People on that Sunday afternoon, confiscated, seized documents, etc., And shortly thereafter, it had arrested 156 leaders of the Congress Alliance, saying that for the demands of the Freedom Charter to be realized, it does imply the overthrowing of the apartheid state, and therefore it would be a treasonous document, and the treason trial uh, you know, was, was, uh, was uh, 
was instituted against the 156 leaders. Okay, after the, the, the Congress of the People, um, Craig uh, spoke early on about the Million Signature Campaign. Thousands of, of volunteers had gone out back again to talk about the Freedom Charter, to popularize it and to collect the signatures. Of course, the ANC and the Congress Alliance never got a million signatures. But from the evidence, at least 350,000 people did sign this document. And it was a way of popularizing of mass political conscientization and education of, of communities in different parts of the country to talk about what is the vision of South Africa. And I think this perhaps explains what the depth of, you know, what the degree of support was for the, for the Freedom Charter. It, is a, it became a living document for ordinary South Africans for decades to come because people understood the nature of this campaign. It was a bottom-up campaign. It wasn't a top-down campaign. What was the political significance of this? I think a number of major developments took place after that. I said, of course, that the, you know, a number of leaders were, were charged for treason. It disorganized the ANC quite substantially and the, and the various structures of the organization. A number of people were banned thereafter. But I think it laid the basis for the ANC to become a national liberation movement. Uh, it, you know, before that, it was really an urban-based movement in the, early, in the early part of the 1950s. It has reached out significantly into rural areas, and it explains the, the rural struggles that unfolded in the last five years of that particular decade. Two, I think it, it helped to consolidate the Congress alliance, uh, a greater sense of a non-racial movement, an emerging incipient non-racial movement, I think became apparent, a greater interaction of the activists of the various Congresses, et cetera, very significant for future political struggles in the country. The third thing was that it gave ideological coherence to the, uh, to the ANC particularly. I mean, within the ANC, we had the stream of the communists that were there, the Africanists, and of course, those that, that espouse a broader non-racialism or a, broader, a more broader vision of a, of a nationalist movement. And these were competing for ascendancy within the organization. What this campaign did is at least it allowed for a coherence of the communist trend within the ANC with the younger Africanist leaders that were emerging through the Youth League. And it isolated the narrow nationalist faction within the ANC, which eventually led to the breakup of the ANC and the split in the ANC, sorry, and the formation of the Pan-Africanist Congress. Key thing was the emergence of a new national women's movement. What the Freedom Charter campaign did is allowed for the first conceptualization of a women's charter and, the and gave new, new life to the incipient women's movement that was emerging on a national stage through the Federation of South African Women. It wasn't there. Before it was just the ANC Women's League and small components within the GIC and the NIC. The, the, the next important thing that I just want to briefly talk about is really the novel concept of political unionism. Trade unions in the in 1920s, 30s, and 40s were, were largely worker organizations looking at worker benefits. But what, this, uh, what the political strike of the 1950s showed was that you could have trade unions uh, you know, incorporating political struggles with, with, with factory-based or shop floor, uh, floor struggles. And this concept of political unionism became the hallmark of the South African Congress of Trade Unions, and we saw evidence of that re-emerging in the 1980s uh, through the trade union movement. So I think all in all, I mean, this was the most powerful campaign that transformed the very nature 
and character of the Congress movement uh, in the 1950s. Of course, it led to the breakaway of the, of the PAC and, and you know, the preemptive move in terms of the anti-Pastos campaign, at the Sharpeville massacres and then the banning of the ANC and PAC. So it propelled the organization almost into a different form of struggle uh, in the 1960s. The last point I want to make, Crane, uh, is just that, uh, you know, the 60s were terrible years. It, I mean, the state, the apartheid state had smashed in the liberation movements. People had gone into, had been detained, imprisoned, jailed, banned, sent into exile, etc. It's a significant disorganization of the liberation movement. But really in the 1980s, the resurfaced as the most powerful symbol of the Congress movement. Uh, the Freedom Charter, popularization of the Charter, political education around the Charter, in, particularly in 1985 when we were celebrating the, the 30th anniversary uh, of, of the Freedom Charter. This became the central tool the mechanism through which we were able to have ideological debates with the black consciousness movement, and also those who we would, you know, would loosely classify as the ultra-leftist movements uh, in the unity movement, et cetera, uh, and also those that were emerging in, as we understood as the workers' movement within uh, the new independent progressive trade unions in the 1980s. So the charter resurfaced as the most important document for very vigorous, animated, ideological debates in the 1980s and which eventually led to the adoption of the Freedom Charter by the United Democratic Front. And then obviously with that, once the UDF you know, adopted the Freedom Charter, it was virtually the unbanning of the ANC itself uh, in the late 1980s, at least during the state of emergency, etc. So I would say this is one of the most important campaigns in the entire history of the liberation movement. It marked a turning point. But what was good about it is that it, was just, it wasn't just a reactive campaign. It was a campaign which was futuristic in its outlook, which encapsulate in one page a vision of a post-apartheid South Africa. Let me leave it there, Green. Thank you very much. I'm indeed very humbled to be in um, esteemed company as I am. So I am somewhat nervous to do my presentation today. Um, the point of my presentation is really looking at what was or deconstructing freedom, kind of what the Freedom Charter had meant, especially as we move towards a post-apartheid um, era. So the whole idea behind uh, what was the book project as well as what I'm talking about today was really around what did what was the dream of 1994? You know, South Africa is progressing towards um, a fourth decade of democracy. We know that we are still grappling with very wicked problems, especially around inequality, poverty, high rates of unemployment. Um, we've also almost seen a re-emergence of, of, of an ideological debate, I would argue, around the meaning of the Freedom Charter, most notably in 2011, when we started talking about political freedom versus economic freedom and then drawing, of course, on the Freedom Charter to make those arguments. Um, but for me, really, I think if we look at the legacy of the Freedom Charter, it is really almost a, a heritage of freedom. Um, it is, it, one can almost see it as a basis of what a free South Africa would look like where one would have equality and fairness, not just 
you know, we speak of equality and fairness, but we need to look at equality and fairness of opportunity, life opportunity, whether education provides equality and fairness in life opportunity, in society, um, in learning. Um, Madam Speaker, uh, Ms. Balekambete had referred to that the doors of culture and learning will be open, that we, and uh, the, the need for education in indigenous home language to create that foundation for that equality of opportunity. So ultimately, I think the heritage um, of the Freedom Charter, especially in a post-1994 context, reflecting on 65 years, really relates to human dignity, creating a society that is based on respect for human dignity, creating a society that really provides that chance, that equality of chance for everybody, regardless of class identity, race identity, gender identity, uh, ideological background, religious background, and so forth. But we know that the meaning of freedom is very, very contested. And we often see um, this narrative of freedom is in your hands, you know, kind of you have political freedom, so you can go ahead and you can go and achieve your dreams. But I think structurally, if we start looking at the nature of a post-apartheid South Africa, you really see that contested narrative of Yes, we might have political freedom, but we still remain oppressed. Come forward. So uh, between 2015 and 2016, I went around various communities in Nelson Mandela Bay. Um, and some of the things I am presenting today is based on uh, interviews with the community of Motherwell in Nelson Mandela Bay. Um, it's historic, it's an historically important community. It is a community that's also characterized by high levels of poverty, very often sees xenophobic violence, uh, HIV AIDS infections, but it is a community that still uh, works and works towards a better life. So one of my questions that I asked, as I said, was kind of what was the dream of 1994? And when I asked participants, especially older participants who lived through the apartheid years, there was almost the sentiment of happiness, of freedom, of elation, of a better tomorrow, and not just a better tomorrow for themselves, but also a better tomorrow for their children. As one participant had said, I felt very happy. I felt extremely happy because this was the first time that black people gained freedom. And it made me feel free as a person as well. Even just strolling around, I felt free. I didn't have to be so conscious around white people. There was no longer any fear. I felt good, really good. And for me, this particular quote really captured almost that, you know, what we speak of the liberation euphoria. And I think it's people cannot really, I think, comprehend or understand the oppression one feels when you have to walk around with a passbook, for example, or you have to explain what you are doing in, in certain areas. And for me, I think part of building that social cohesion bridges is having these conversations reflecting on, on these experiences. Um, one gentleman reflected, talking about expectations, because I grew up in that old era, that old regime, 
So my intention was, should Nelson Mandela be free, we would be living in a free country. Our expectations were that we would gain free education and there'd be lots of jobs and that everyone would be employed, things like that. And that everyone would have his or her own house, things like that. And those were the things that we expected, which I expected. <clears throat> And again, I think it is important also to reflect on what the basis of inequality was, where um, formal housing structures, water and sanitation, those basic, basic services were not equally available to, to everybody. And the expectation was that that would change, that things would transform. And I think to a degree, if we reflect on post-1994 South Africa, one cannot negate some of the great gains made. Um, the number of basic services rolled out in terms of water and sanitation, facilitating increased access to education, but still struggling with those, as I mentioned, wicked problems of poverty, inequality, and unemployment, and trying to find creative policy solutions to move um, forward. What was quite interesting during the interviews was this generational divide that seemed to pop up, that we are still seeking freedom. Um, and for me, and this is again just one quote, I think in my own opinion, for those who lived before 94, their aim of freedom was to free Mandela. Then after it was to have their own black government. But for me, who was born in 1987, the word freedom for me is still an idea, which South Africa has not yet implemented. It is just an idea. The reason why I say that is because for me, the word freedom is too big a word for South Africa. Because yet you find in such instances, we have private schools, private hospitals, and then in such instances, where is the freedom there? They always say that, um, they always say that education is key to success. Therefore, without education, there is no freedom. If education was free, then I would say, yes, we do have freedom. The only place where you can get free education is in prison. When you get in prison, you'll get education for free. After you've received that education, you won't get anywhere because you'll have a criminal record, meaning that that education is useless. So where is the freedom in that? And I think for me, this quote really started or really captured almost what uh, some of the Feast Must Fall student activists had termed a prepaid form of freedom. If you can pay for private education, if you can pay for private health care, then it almost there's this perception that your life chances are, are better or you would have greater success in achieving your life's dream and achieving that, um, that life's chance. I also think it speaks to issues around um, quality of education and kind of how through the education system, the idea that that can be used to kind of almost level the proverbial playing field in terms of creating equality of chance is important. Um, uh, just my last quote that freedom is still coming because I note we uh, have about 20 minutes left for discussion. This la young lady, I also have to tell the backstory about this young lady. She was a 21 year old young lady and her greatest dream was to become a medical doctor. 
However, she told us um, that because there was no medical school uh, in Nelson Mandela Bay at that time, and also because um, there was quite a severe lack of funds in the family, that she would not be able to go to medical school. And her greatest fear was that her biggest life achievement would be that she would end up having to work as a domestic worker. And all she dreamt about was, have, was becoming a medical doctor. That was her life's dream. And she ended off our interview by saying, I think when you compare my mother and I, my mother's more satisfied with the freedom we have now, but whereas I don't see it as freedom. She was forced to carry a dompers. There were whites only places, no black places. She didn't have a house at that time, whereas now she's living in an RDP house. She's willing to vote, um, which is said that your vote is your voice. Maybe she has a voice, whereas I don't have, um, I don't have it. And that is why I'm saying she is more satisfied than I am. I can say now, yes, we can vote and that our vote is our voice and you vote for your own political party and that political party will backstab you. The same political party will oppress you and it's that same political party that we'll put our hopes on. So I don't see freedom yet. Maybe my freedom is still coming. Um, and for me, and I think this really symbolized kind of some of the problems um, that South Africa has faced, especially in its democratization journey. There are deeply rooted systemic problems, most notably around poverty and inequality. There are deeply rooted contextual problems. Um, that, uh, sorry, I see my security system is going off. I apologize for the dog barking. Um, there are deeply rooted contextual problems. We cannot ignore our very particular history and we cannot ignore kind of the spatialities of apartheid that seems to continue and form part of those very wicked problems and of course lastly we cannot ignore our very specific political um, problems that we do need to deal with and with that I'm going to end off the conversation because I see uh, Professor Sodine's uh, what did you say ghost image has appeared as my cue to finish. Thank you very much. I, I felt quite moved by um, the presentations um, and we are very happy to have had the opportunity to organize this webinar. Um, unfortunately, there seems to have been a problem with people um, logging in. So, uh, but we've, we've got a lot of uh, people here who are going to be um, have learned a lot and also be able to ask a few questions despite um, very limited time. Um, for, the, for the keynote speaker, Mr. Baleka Mbete, uh, Madam Chair, um, you spoke about what life was like, what leadership was like in the 1950s, um, who we were then and who we are now and um, the aspirations that we had. And you were very honest um, about the shortcomings um, that we have now, and in particular, listening to the voices of citizens um, and the importance of understanding uh, protest, understanding unhappiness, 
um, listening to service delivery concerns. And um, that that is something that maybe we are missing um, in the in the ninety in the twenty in two thousands that we had more of um, in certain instances in the nineteen fifties uh, when people were working towards uh, bringing a democracy, uh, birthing a democracy. Um, Professor William Mugate. Gumede gave us um, 10 points to consider, and I won't list them, but all of them are taking COVID into consideration and a post-COVID world that will be better than the one that we have now, because the uh, pandemic seems to have created opportunities for us to look back at the principles and ideals in the Freedom Charter, and for us to reconsider the way in which we have been living our lives and the way in which we have been governing and governed as people. Um, Professor Vardy, that was a phenomenal um, historical context that you provided to us um, and the, the immense movement that was created around this, this Freedom Charter that somehow is also missing now. Um, the social movements, the, the working together of uh, communities, of society itself, even though it was very divided. Um, and it does feel uh, almost nostalgic uh, when you speak of these times. Um, and then going on to Professor Jolene Stein-Kotzer, who spoke to us about what freedom really means and that freedom means different things to different people. And so the Freedom Charter gave us um, this, this outline um, and these ideals to, to work towards. Um, and some people feel that we have attained most of what we require, but many people feel that we have not attained the ideals of the Freedom Charter, some of which are embedded on the, in the constitution, but not all. And essentially what I'm hearing from all of you is that we need to strive towards a better life for all. And we have an opportunity to do this now in celebrating 65 years uh, since the Freedom Charter, but not necessarily 65 years of freedom. So I'd like to thank our speakers um, and I'd like to thank uh, my colleague, Prof uh, Professor Greg Houston, um, for assisting in organizing this, as well as Arlene Grossberg and our CEO for chairing. Um, and I'll hand over back to you, Crane. It's your turn now to, to make comments, please, colleagues. Uh, comments, questions, uh, 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 um, insights, over to you, please, colleagues. Oh, thank you. You unmuted me. Good, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for wonderful presentations. I just want to start with a reflection on uh, Comrade or Professor Ishmael's wonderful reflection on the history and just to contribute that. So I'm from the 80s generation and from 1980, which I think if I remember correctly, we declared the year of the charter. We actually were part of a process of unbanning the charter and unbanning the ANC through distributing the Freedom Charter. And it was very important as a mobilization tool then. And I think what Ishmael mentioned is that by the time you got to the late 80s, it 
it meant a de facto unbanning of the ANC. But what happened in the process was that it established the, the program of the National Democratic Struggle as a unified program, which became widely accepted. Of course, not accepted by everybody, which was why we were labeled as charterists, because the ANC was unbanned. So we couldn't be identified with ANC or with Congress, but charterist was the term which was used. And I don't know if people remember that, but anyway, there used to be extensive ideological battles between the charterists and the other forces. So just going on to the, the other presentations is that, you know, I think uh, uh, Comrade Mbete and uh, Prof Kumede both mentioned mm structural transformation and Jolene as well, who's my old colleague, by the way, she also mentioned structural inequality. So if you have structural, if you need structural transformation, what does that mean? So, I mean, we all know the Freedom Charter had a lot of communist input into it and it was a national democratic program, but maintaining a very strong socialist emphasis on redistribution. So I really just want to comment very quickly on uh, Prof. Gomedi's input into this because I really like a lot of what he was saying about the manufacturing sectors and how we need to localize and diversify and in increase our capacity in terms of manufacturing in the different sectors. Um, the thing that's missing there is, you know, our energy and food sectors are highly centralized highly monopolized and surely the way in which to do this in line with the freedom charter would be to decentralize localize and create social ownership of essential i mean means of production including food and energy production so that's my contribution thank you okay thanks let's let's have on uh, and is there anybody else would like to speak please because let's take all of the questions and then I'll hand back to the, the panel, please. Anybody else? Go ahead, Han. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you also for this great, uh, uh, great afternoon. It's, uh, it's a very good uh, and rewarding discussion. I'm Han Peters. I'm the Dutch ambassador. I uh, happen to be in South Africa as well in the early 90s. So I know how the Freedom Charter in the early 90s was present everywhere in mass demonstrations and gatherings. Um, I listened to the enormous list of challenges. Uh, Professor Gomede laid that out well for us. Um, where to start? You can't possibly do everything. So what is a good first step to indeed build back better? Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Jonas? Hello, Professor. Hi, thank you. Um, Thank you, Prof, and thank you, all, you know, all the August speakers and everybody here. Um, I just want to pick up from what Honorable Ismail Vadi uh, was saying earlier. What struck me was the confidence um, of moving the ANC from the 1940s um, through to uh, the 1950s and beyond, and how that impetus um, in terms of Honorable Vadi's presentation um, reinvigorated the ANC in many senses. My question is, if we were to look at the kind of public works uh, programs that, um, uh, that Prof. Komedi was speaking about and bringing the public back into manufacturing and building the country again, 
then we have to really look at the moment between 1990 and 94, I think, uh, in relation to what Honorable Vardy was saying. The confidence that we need to take into the global uh, arena now and say that we can, in fact, speak, you know, speak back to institutions like the World Bank and IMF, and that we need to be able to say that we need to go you know, into an anti-austerity uh, economy and an, uh, you know, an anti-austerity an anti economic program. Um, I think for me, that really struck me in terms of what Honorable Vardy was saying. And, you know, and perhaps everything is predicated on that big decision and how we need to think about that again in terms of uh, this national and global politics. Thank you, Chair. Thanks very much. So if there aren't any uh, further questions, there were questions that came in the chat. Um, and Ella raised a question about uh, food gardens. Uh, Mary Burton raised the question about the capacity uh, in, the, uh, in our provinces. Uh, and I'd like to raise uh, uh, um, Comrade Mbete, just one other question. You, you said very interestingly uh, that we inherited this culture, this practice of consultation coming out of, out of the, uh, the, the, the Freedom Charter process. Uh, and then you, you, you made this uh, incredible comment and you said, uh, we have institutionalized this practice now into the way in which we govern. But is it just a ritual? I mean, you, you use the word ritual. You said, is this now just a ritual? And I really would like you to please help us, you know, understand just the significance of, of how we come to deepen, actually, these good things that happen and how we uh, avoid turning them simply into now tokens of, 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 of just what this poster boy for the new world, uh, you know, that South Africa might be. How does South Africa come to present itself? Uh, to the rest of the world as a uh, democratic model, which is meaningful, uh, which we don't actually have, I'd like to say, anywhere in the world. You know, anywhere in the world, we have these rituals. So how do we, how do we move beyond that? So what I'd like to now do, uh, colleagues, um, in the few minutes that we have left here, is to ask our panel to uh, respond to the questions give each of them uh, a minute or so, uh, and then uh, for us to, to wind up, uh, please. So can we start with you, uh, Comrade Mbete? If I have a minute or so, I, I'll, my main point that I take away from here, also from one of the participants that raised an issue uh, during discussion. For me, it's very important for us to find ways of channeling what we do, our programs and the resources to the local areas, as close to the people as possible. And therefore, whatever skills we have as government, whatever programs we have as government, whatever campaigns, we must make sure we prioritize the problems that are there that we saw just now with COVID-19, when the informal settlements were actually showing us the reality of those people. And I know it because we go there doing door-to-door. -door. We will soon do it next year when we are preparing for local government elections. We will go for door-to-door -door campaigns People will tell us the same problems. 
because they still don't have water as we have again discovered and we were able somehow to open up through the necessary legislation for us to be able to access more resources for us to be able to take water and i'm praying that after this lockdown is over we must not go away and say those tanks that came to bring water to those waterless rural villages or townships and all sorts of um, places and informal settlements where the majority of our people are in the urban areas we found as we saw on tv that actually people are so overcrowded and they don't have a drop of water and they've been telling us that they don't have water as we have been going to them. So what happens after we have been there for the door-to-door -door campaign? That is my question. To what extent does the program of the Ministry of Water and the local government itself, to what extent does it respond to the issues that they raise with us? That's my issue when I say, is it just a ritual to go to those uh, communities and to go to those people. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Comrade Mbete. Yeah, over to you, William. Uh, yes, um, maybe the very first thing that we can do, you know, the question of what, what do we do? What is the basic thing? I think the first thing in the, um, taking the lessons from the charter campaigns to be more inclusive, to bring more talents together. Uh, to, you know, to mobilize all of South Africa's talents. That's the first thing. I mean, unfortunately now since 1994, fewer, fewer people are running this country. And when you run with fewer, fewer people, when you run a country, um, you know, there's just not enough skills. Um, so it just means that, you know, over 75% of the country is demobilized and the skills and the talent that demobilized are not used. I mean, similarly, just think about it, like a similar, uh, a basic example, if, you, if we have patriarchy in society and you, know, and you exclude 50% of, 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 of women out of decision-making, whether in the personal life or, um, or the decision-making um, in, whether decision-making your personal life uh, or, uh, or, or sorry, decision-making um, in society and so on. So, you know, so it is going to be very important that we bring in the skills and mobilize the skills of every South African, uh, which is not currently the case. So in a crisis, especially beyond COVID-19, um, if we don't do that, um, you know, we're really going to falter. The second thing is also to bring in um, partnerships. The state on its own or the ANC on its own cannot on its own govern. And I think people might just stop thinking that way. You, you know, we have to have partnerships from the national level to local level. And when I say partnerships, you bring civil society, bring a private sector, bring citizens, uh, uh, volunteers, you bring people in. Um, and that's a really, that was the success of all of the, if you look back at the, you know, the, the campaigns for the Freedom Ch uh, Charter, um, that's, that's what has happened. Uh, there. That was the success of it. And then thirdly for me, some of the key things is to deal with, to bring accountability into the system. Um, you know, so we are, free, but we're free on a, at a very narrow political level. We're free because you can vote freely, but beyond that, unfortunately, there's no, your freedom is very limited. Um, 
and because the accountability is missing. So accountability, but individual citizens and civil society, the media and so on, will also have to play that role and to hold people accountable. And maybe the last one, we may have to break out of the issue of, you know, in the past, we, uh, we supported political parties, ideologies, just on the basis of the past and the basis of, you know, um, and so on, and support people. We may have to stop that in order to start looking at people we support on the basis of their moral value, values, their competence, um, the social justice, and their honesty. Yeah, thanks. That is very uh, uh, provocative again, uh, William. Thank you. Uh, Ismail, over to you. Then, you know, uh, since the inauguration of uh, President Ramaphosa, I mean, every one of his major speeches is social compact. Uh, I think the Freedom Charter represented the, the social compact of the 1950s. Maybe the adoption of our constitution in 1996 represented the second wave of that. But I do think we are at a crossroads at the moment. I mean, we have a, an economy in crisis. We have serious stresses and strains within our, our social order. We have a cacophony of voices. We can't pull together as a nation. And, uh, you know, whilst the notion of a social compact, uh, everybody's talking about it, whether it's labor, business, civil society, the content, the substance of that content, I don't think there's any agreement. I mean, we've seen so often where uh, the president will have meetings with, with various stakeholders, and the moment they come out, they start talking in different tongues again. I think we are at a point, maybe 26 years into our democracy, where we need to, you know, draw a lesson from that campaign. We can't construct a co social compact top down. Yes, of course, leaders play an important role in steering and giving that vision. But I think we are at a point where we need a bottom up, a bottom -up approach to reconstructing a social compact to take our country out of the crisis that we are in at the moment. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, last word, uh, Jolene. Everybody has raised very critical points, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic in particular has exposed those fault lines. Um, I think for me, the biggest lesson drawn out of this project on delivering an elusive dream of democracy is the fact that although, as uh, Professor Kumede had mentioned, there is almost a narrow form of political freedom, that full emancipation, that full push towards human dignity is still something that remains elusive. Um, and I think a key legacy of that, as well as an increased political disengagement, and that also coupled with low levels of political trust. So it goes back to uh, what was mentioned by Professor Vardy as well, bringing the voice of the community in, but also taking the voice of the community seriously um, and incorporating their views and their developmental initiatives into the narrative and policy implementation as well. Okay, thanks very much, Jolene, and thanks to all of our colleagues. Colleagues, you had also noticed a, a, a really serious discussion taking place along the sides here in the, in the chat. Uh, and that conversation is essentially about uh, what it is that uh, uh, we say uh, when we talk about, and I'm quoting Janet here now, bottom up, um, are we afraid to use this word socialism? Uh, you know, what is the status of the socialist project here? And, and it's a really provocative discussion, which I think is embedded in, in, in all of that. So 
um, 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 the way in which these sessions work here and apologies to all of the folks who who may have wanted to say something and speak the way in which these 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 sessions work is 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 that there are multiple things going on and the technology is allowing us to have voice and also this 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 uh, side uh, uh, conversation uh, and it's quite wonderful but it's 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 also uh, frustrating just in terms of, 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 of uh, um, having to not be able to put the whole thing together uh, in almost unlimited time but thank you all uh, um, thank you ambassador also for being with us uh, thank you to comrade Mbete thank you to William thank you to um, Ismail and, and, and you, Jolene, and to all of you for, for, for being uh, with us this, this uh, afternoon. I think it's been a, a really provocative uh, and let me say also tantalizing uh, conversation uh, that we would like to have more opportunity for. And uh, for that, Nanya, uh, I want to thank you and um, Tabo and, and, and Arlene for, for getting us going. And, uh, may we have more of this. Um, thanks. So thanks, colleagues, and uh, goodbye to all of you.